You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekiah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly feared. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep from his fa- for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said, Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to, in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in his appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. 
that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Uh, What we're going to do this semester in RUF, we just started last week, but what we're going to do is that we're going to walk through... Uh, and explore the life of this guy named David. And we're going to do this little series that I'm calling Ordinary Spirituality. And of course, today we're looking at a passage that is famous and familiar to uh, religious communities and irreligious communities. This, you know, the David and Goliath. Can we kill this, by the way? I don't really need this anymore. Thanks. Blinded by the light. Um... Uh, what was I saying? David and Goliath. Yeah, so the question that I, wanna, I want us to think through tonight is this. Um, what is this story actually about? Is this just like an awesome underdog story? Or uh, are you supposed to walk away from this story and, and, and you are David and you've got to go out there and you fight your giants? Or is maybe there more going on to this? Uh, here's how I want to start. Uh, when I was in seminary, we lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and my wife and I were looking to get a new place to live. We had stayed in an apartment our first year, and we were looking to get a house. And my friend found this great house that had just gone on the market. It was in this cool, old-school neighborhood that we wanted to be a part of. It was these old 1920 bungalow kind of houses with enormous front porches. And uh, so we went and checked it out, and the house was awesome. The, the, the people that previously owned it had renovated it. It basically had been flipped. There was like all, everything was upgraded, new appliances, uh, marble countertops in the kitchen. It was like awesome. So we bought it and loved it. And maybe three or four months into living in that house, we started to see cracks developing in the kitchen. And the marble countertops that were once flat and smooth got all wonky and uneven. And so we called some guy, hired some guy to come out and check it out. And he basically found that the people that had renovated the house had put these heavy marble countertops in the kitchen, but they hadn't thought to reinforce you know, the, the pillars that the house is sitting on. So here's this heavy, enormous weight crushing down on these uh, uh, un, you know, un, uh, unstrong found, foundation. You're with me. And it was crushing it, causing these cracks to form. We had to hire a structural engineer to reinforce these things, threw tons of money into it. Awful. Horrible story. Maybe we should, we should close in prayer there. Um, but, the, but I thought about that image, and I thought that's really in some ways a picture of what faith is. Faith is you resting the weight of your soul and your life and your dreams and your identity upon something. And by the way, everyone does it. Everyone, not just uh, religious people. Uh, you may not believe any of the stuff that we're talking about, but, but if we examined your life, you are resting the weight of your hopes and dreams upon something. And the question is, that I want you to think about tonight, is can the foundation of whatever you're, you're putting the weight of your life on, can that foundation sustain it? Can it hold it? Or are the cracks of your, uh, the house of your life, uh, is, your, is the house of your life cracking as a result? 
That's what we need to think about tonight as we look at this passage, because this is a really interesting story. There are three main characters in this enormous novel that Blair just read for us, and I want to, they kind of read like a case study. And What I want to do is, is look at each of these major characters and ask the question, what are they resting their hopes and their dreams and their life upon, and is it actually working out for them? So that's what I want to do. We're just going to look at these three case studies. Here's the first character I want you to look at with me. Our boy Goliath. What is Goliath's faith in? That's the question for this first thought. And, and to get at that, let me, let me set up the story if you didn't catch all the details there. Uh, the army of the Israelites are at war yet again with their mortal enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines are on this mountaintop over here, and the Israelites are on this mountaintop over here, and there's this big valley in between. And every single day, twice a day, stomps down Goliath from the Philistine army. And he just starts shouting and talking smack to the other side. And, uh, of course, Goliath is enormous. Scholars kind of debate on how tall this dude really was. Some say he was seven feet tall. Uh, Some say he was eight or nine feet tall. However tall he was, it's very clear this dude is enormous. And the text says... He is decked out in like the latest high-tech weaponry and armor. So I'm picturing like a hybrid of Shaq, back when he was like athletic, and the Incredible Hulk uh, in like an Iron Man suit. It's like this is a killing machine. So uh, here's what he says at the end of verse 8 and into verse 9, if you look at it with me. If you can read the font on your bulletin. He says this, choose a man, one man, choose a man from yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us. So that's the terms of this battle. This is not an army versus army deal. This is a one-on-one match. I've always been confused by that. Like, why didn't Israel, like as a, as a multitude, just like swarm in and like take this joker down. But that's not, that's not how the terms of the battle were. It's one guy versus one guy. But of course, the champion of the Philistines is this enormous killing machine, Goliath. And now you know why in verse 11, uh, everybody is undone and terrified. Because Goliath is like, he's never been defeated. He's like 85 and 0. He's like a... Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One. Like, you can't stop him. He's just going through and just, like, smashing everybody. (laughs) You cannot take Goliath down. So everybody is terrified because if you lose to Goliath, your whole army loses the battle. If Goliath loses, their whole army loses the battle. Everything is at stake. Now, here's the question then. What do you think Goliath was trusting in, resting in, in this moment? I think it's very clear if you, if you kind of uh, read between the lines that, that he's uh, trusting in himself. And, and why wouldn't he? He, 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 is, he is massive. He's, he's a big deal, and he knows it. Uh, he essentially uh, has never failed. And in many ways, the, Goliath is a picture of what the world wants you, your attitude about yourself to be like. Look at your strengths. Look at your assets. Look at what you're good at and form an identity based off of that. And that's exactly what Goliath has done. He said, I'm a big deal. I'm strong. Nobody can take me out. I'm really successful in the military. This is who I am, and I'm kind of a big deal. His, his confidence, his, his, um, uh, his faith is in himself. I mean, you hear this phrase all the time in our day and age, believe in yourself. 
I, I think I heard that Obama said that in his, in his uh, farewell address. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw a poster with Believe in Yourself at Barnes & Noble. And uh, I also did a research on how many times that phrase shows up in movies. They, I mean, every movie that's ever been written, that's the point of the movie, Believe in Yourself. Here's a short list of movies that I found on the interwebs that use the phrase, Believe in Yourself. National Treasure... <laughs> Classic. The Devil Wears Prada, Pirates of the Caribbean, Caribbean, whichever one, uh, Miss Congeniality, Shrek, Cars, Turbo, Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness, Toy Story 2, and basically every Disney movie that's ever been created. Believe in yourself. Goliath believes in himself. Like, that's what you get when you get, when that message really comes home. You get unending, unstoppable, ego, self-confidence, nobody can take me down. You know who else has, um, who, who has faith in themselves? Kanye. Um, he's just taking the Goliath, he's taking the formula that Goliath is working with, and he's just kind of pushing it to its logical conclusion. Here's a quote that I found recently from Kanye West. This is amazing. I'm going down as a legend whether you like me or not. The Bible had 20, 30, 40, 50 characters in it. Don't you think I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? This is the greatest line ever. My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. I'm the number one human being in music that makes any person that's living or breathing number two. I am the number one impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. Came out of his mouth. Now, I know, like, that can sound kind of, like, cartoonish. And Goliath can kind of sound cartoonish. Like, nobody, nobody has that level of self-confidence and faith and belief in themselves. Except Kanye. But I want you to think about this. That, that belief system, that DNA is shot through every single one of our hearts as well. And, and I want to show it to you. Uh, how do you know if you are this self-confident, this self-reliant? Here's one way you can know. Is to look at your prayer life. Like how often do you uh, practically depend on the Lord? Or... Is your life really just white-knuckling your way through it and say, I got this, I got this. I don't, I don't, I don't need the Lord's help. Uh, you can also know if you're a self-confident, self-reliant person and what your faith is ultimately in is yourself is by asking yourself, do I involve my friends in my struggles, in my pain? Do I, do I share with my friends uh, what hurts in my life, what's broken in my life? Uh, that I'm lonely, that I'm insecure? Or uh, do you privatize all of that and hide all of that and just kind of put on the smile and keep going? You will know if you are, uh, what your foundation is, if it's in yourself, based off how you ask for help. Help from God, help from friends. That feels so natural, though, for us to trust in ourselves, believe in ourselves. I don't need anybody's help. I can do this. That feels so natural, but is that a safe and a secure foundation? I'm going to argue no. By the simple fact that Goliath dies at the end of this thing. 
Like this, his self-confidence didn't work out for him. In fact, he was, his ego was so overinflated. He had so much self-esteem. He thought he was invincible. And that's precisely the reason why David beat him. He didn't see the threat that was in front of him because he was so overly confident that he could have taken this guy out. He could have just stepped on David and it would have been game over. His ego, his self-reliance was the thing that caused him to fail. And here's the truth. Here's the reality for you. You are not invincible. You are limited by the sheer fact that you're a human. It's not sinful to be limited, but it's just the reality that you are. You need food. You need sleep. You need rest. Y'all don't actually believe this. And I know that's true because some of you have shared with me your schedules. And you've showed me your schedules and you're like... Okay, I've got, to, I've got to test it in the next morning, so I'm going to pull an all-nighter at the library tonight. I'm going to go hard. I'm going to study all night, take that test in the morning. Then I've got to get to my next class. After that, I'm going to go work out. After I get back from working out, I've got that lab report that I've got to finish up in the afternoon. After the lab report, I've got to get to club. So I go to club. After club, I've got three different friends that have three different 21-year-old birthday parties. So I've got to go to these three different birthday parties. <laughs> After that, I've got to finish and turn this assignment before tomorrow. And that's your day. And that's you thinking, I am invincible, I'm unlimited, I can do whatever I want, I don't need sleep, I don't need food, I don't need people, I don't need rest, I can do it all. (laughs) And if you go through life white-knuckling your way through it, self-confidence, self-reliance, I can do it, I don't need God, I don't need people, you will fail. You'll either fail like Goliath, or you'll just fail in utter exhaustion. That is not a foundation worth putting the weight of your soul on. The, the, the house of your life will crack to pieces. So let's look at the second character. That's Goliath. Let's look at Saul. Saul is the uh, king of Israel at this point. What is his faith in? Well, we saw this last week, but there are two different times in the book that Saul is described as being a head taller than everybody else in Israel. That means not only is Saul their king, Saul is their giant. Israel had their own giant, and it was Saul. And when it came time for who's going to go out there and fight Goliath, it was obvious it should be Saul. But what do we see Saul doing uh, in verse 11? It says that he basically became undone, paralyzed with fear. It's like there's no way I'm going out there. But what else do we know about Saul, other than the fact that he's kind of a coward when, when things get real? We know that Saul was religious. He was not a, you know, immoral pagan Philistine. He uh, was a religious guy. He was so, in fact, a couple of chapters before this, he got in trouble because he was so eager to do a sacrifice for the Lord. Um, In fact, even when David goes out to fight Goliath at the end, I don't know if you notice this, in verse 37, Saul looks at David and says, go, the Lord be with you. Like he's using religious God talk kind of language. He's religious. He's using religious vocabulary. And yet, when life really got out of control for him, when he had to step up and deal with a a monster named Goliath, you saw what he was actually trusting in. He was not actually trusting in God. God made no impact in his life when it really mattered because he just froze in fear. He became undone. Saul's confidence, his faith, is in his ability to manipulate his circumstances. And when it got so overwhelming and so stressful, God became functionally irrelevant, and he just broke down. And that's really scary because that gives you a picture of somebody that does religious stuff, is even a religious leader in a religious community, uses the right religious language, 
and actually does not love and trust God. That his faith is on the surface. It's just, uh, it's faith as decoration. It hasn't actually sunken into his heart and changed the way that he lives. And, And what's interesting is that you will know what you are trusting in, what you're putting the weight of your soul on. You will figure out what that is when you are overwhelmed, when you are stressed out, when suffering hits. I mean, suffering always exposes what you actually functionally trust in in this life. And here's Saul, and he's trusting in the same exact thing that Goliath is, himself, his ability to get it done. He just, shows, he just happens to encounter a situation where he can't get it done anymore, and he falls apart. I knew this student uh, a number of years ago that was involved in RUF, and uh, she was one of our leaders and served in this community and loved students, loved people, and was a great leader. And in fact, when I first met her, uh, this was at a different school, by the way, no one here. Uh, when I first met her, she, she had been dating this guy since high school. Thrilled about this guy, super excited about him. And, she, and so she even said to me when we, when we first met that she wanted me to do their premarital counseling and officiate their wedding when they got engaged. And she had scripted the perfect life for her and this guy. And out of nowhere, one day the guy breaks up with her. And she is un, her life just unravels. She stops coming to RUF, stops serving other people, uh, slowly starts to walk away from the Lord. Like, how do you explain that? I think here's how you explain it. She was trusting in her script for her perfect life. And when that got blown to pieces, it showed you what she was actually trusting in. And she walked away from God and religion and faith. It was all just decoration. It wasn't deep. It was surface. And when, she didn't, when her life didn't work out the way that it was supposed to work out, God became irrelevant. He wasn't, he wasn't following through on his end of the deal. So here's the question for you. Uh, what do you actually trust in when life spins out of control? When you're stressed out and when you're overwhelmed and you feel like there's too much to do? How do you respond in those moments? Some of you are like Goliath where you're like, there's too much to do and I'm going to move into all of this stuff and I'm going to crush it. I will not be defeated. I will not stop. I will not pray. I don't have time to. I will not involve people with my struggles. They can't see the cracks. I don't want people to see me as weak. I will not go to counseling. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to smile. I'm going to stuff all the pain down. I'm going to throw back some Red Bulls and I'm going to get to work. That's self-reliance. Some of y'all are like Saul. Where you're like, stuff is overwhelming, stuff is hitting the fan, I'm stressed out, and rather than going and crushing life, I just get crushed by life. And I retreat from my friends, I retreat from people, I distract myself with Netflix or Xbox or my phone, or I shop or I eat or I drink, and I just numb the pain in whatever way I can do it. And I just shut down and break down. Two different responses to stress and pain trusting in the same exact thing. Goliath and Saul trusting in the same thing themselves. One just happens to be winning at life. One happens to be losing at life. But what happens to both of them in the end? They both fail. The house of their lives crack to pieces. So let's look at the last uh, character. Our boy David. What's David trusting in? Well, I think it's pretty clearly that David's confidence, his trust is in God. If you look at verse 34 and 37, uh, David is explaining to Saul 
how he has experienced the Lord's love and care and protection. He explains the, there are these situations that he, as this shepherd boy, uh, encountered on a couple of occasions these ferocious lions and bears and that the Lord was able, through him, to defeat these like monsters. So David rolls up into the valley to step up to Goliath because he's fully confident, my God can defeat this behemoth. He goes into like the ring with his life at stake. I mean, Goliath could have just crushed him and didn't even think about it. But he goes in, trusting in the Lord, takes his little sling with the stone, whips it, whips it real good, whips and nays it, and then throws it, bangs it off of Goliath's head. Dude falls to the ground on his face. David runs up to this colossus on the ground, takes his sword out of his sheath, chops his head off, it's unbelievably awesome, isn't it? Later in the story, you know, he holds, holds up the head by the hair and brings it back. Another, uh, we'll talk about that later. And, um, but it just sounds like, it's, it's, this story sounds like, it's just like the classic underdog story, right? Here's the shrimp, shrimpy guy up against, you know, the monster. This is, you know, here are the, the Looney Tunes versus the Monstars. This is, um, it's such an underdog story, but I want, you to show, I want to show you that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not about David's courage. It's not about go and be like David. The point of the story is not that David was young, scrappy, and hungry. He was, he's not the point. The point is about God. That God can use unqualified, inadequate, weak, insignificant people to accomplish his purposes. That's the point of the story. If the point of the story was... You go and be like David and you step up to the Goliaths in your life. I'll just use me as an example. I can't do that. I can't summon the courage to take on what life has for me. I've tried and it doesn't work. I'm on anxiety medication like as we speak. It's like in my system because of how fearful and insecure and afraid I really am. I'm afraid of confrontation. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of being exposed as a fraud. I'm afraid of RUF falling apart because of me. I can't just like gather my strength together and like go be David. You know who I am in the story? I'm not David in the story. I'm one of the Israelites like knees knocking off in the corner, like paralyzed with fear, can't do anything about the situation. That's who I am in the story. Maybe you are too. And the question is, what does God provide For people like me, anxious, insecure, terrified, afraid people. What what does God provide for people like us? He provides a savior. And if you think about it, the kind of savior that he provides, he provides a weak savior and he provides a representative savior. Think about these one at a time. The savior that God provides for the people of Israel in David is unbelievably weak. I mean, this, is, this is the point of the story, right? I mean, it reads like an, an SNL skit. You've got this weak, inadequate little child going up against this monster. And it's not in spite of the fact that David is weak that he defeats Goliath. It's because of the fact that he's weak that he defeats Goliath. It is his weakness that is the thing that takes down the monster. It's the, the same story behind uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You remember the... You remember the old song, the old cartoon? Um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he had this red glowing nose. I mean, it's like 
a freak. He's a weirdo. And uh, if you remember, uh, all the other reindeer, they used to laugh and call him names. They, they never let Rudolph play in any of their reindeer games. Because he was weird and he had this weird glowing nose. It was, he was, that was his weakness. That was his flaw. But if you'll remember, then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say, you know, Rudolph... With your nose, like, so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It's so foggy on Christmas Eve. Santa can't get around. He needs some, he needs some light. So he's like, hey, Rudolph, you with the weird freak nose, come over here and help me. And it's his weakness that helps Santa save Christmas. Same story in First uh, Samuel 17. <laughs> David's weakness is the thing that defeats Goliath. But it wasn't just his weakness, it was the fact that he was a representative. What happened to David happened to the people of Israel. What happened to Goliath happened to the people of Israel. He stepped forward to represent the entire army. Think about this. Uh, if, if we were to rewind back into last fall and, and we, we, we paused the, the semester for the, for, the, uh, for the Vols football season before things started to kind of get messy at the end, if we stopped the tape at the, uh, the Georgia game, and at the last second, you remember, Jawan Jennings catches that Hail Mary pass in the end zone, and we win at the buzzer, and everyone's screaming and going crazy and shouting to everybody, and like telling everybody, like, we won, we won, I can't believe we won. And if you think about that, we won? We didn't do anything. We're not on the team. We didn't step foot on the field. I don't, I don't even go here, and I told everybody we won. I'm not even alumni here. But that's how it works. You say we won because there's one guy that caught a football in the end zone, and he was representing all of the Vol Nation, and we all won even though we did nothing. We were on the couch in our sweatpants with Cheeto dust on our fingertips. We didn't lift a finger, and all of the victory was ours because he represented us. When David defeated Goliath, Israel won the battle, and they didn't lift a finger. They didn't do anything but panic and freak out, and they won because their champion defeated Goliath on their behalf. God saves people, and he always saves people, by providing a weak and a representative savior. And that's what he does with Jesus. Centuries after this, he sends his son Jesus, who is unbelievably weak, obscure, overlooked. Nobody recognizes him. Nobody cares about him. And it is his weakness. It is his death of dying on a cross, that is the thing that pays the penalty for your sin and mine. He does not come conquering with force. He comes in utter weakness and dies naked and homeless on a cross. How weak and uncool is that? And yet that weakness is the very thing that saves us. And he's our representative. He accomplishes for us what we can never accomplish for ourselves. He does Everything. We do nothing. We don't even lift a finger and we are saved because he is our representative. What happens to him happens to us. When this gets in your bloodstream, when this begins to uh, 
um, click for you. What Jesus has done on your behalf. This changes everything. And and what I want to conclude with is to throw out the question for you to ponder. Isn't that a better foundation to build your life on? His omnipotent, unstoppable love for you? Do you want to white-knuckle your way through life? Striving, never ceasing, never ending, never enough, got to keep going, got to keep going. Or rest on the foundation of Jesus alone and what he has accomplished on your behalf and get all the benefits of his victory imputed to you. I'll I'll end with this final thought, final story. I'm sure some of y'all have seen the video series uh, that's floated around the internet before uh, of Team Hoyt. It's this father-son like racing team, uh, Dick and Rick Hoyt. Uh, Rick Hoyt, the son, when he was born, he had extreme oxygen deprivation to his brain. And so he was uh, diagnosed as a, quote, this is on their website, a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. He would live the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Um, When he was 15 years old, he asked his dad, hey, I want to be a part of this race that's happening in our town. It's a benefit run uh, for this lacrosse player that was paralyzed recently. It's a five-mile run. So the dad, he's not an athlete, not a runner, but said, okay, you want to do this? I'll do it. And so he pushed him like behind the wheelchair and ran five miles. They ran this race that came in dead last. No, second to last. And at the end of that race, the son, the 15-year-old son, says to his dad this, Um, says this, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. Dad, when when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. And that changed everything for the dad. Since that race, they've run a thousand races together. They've run triathlons, marathons, Ironman competitions. I mean, the dad's 70 years old, still doing it. Uh, they they uh, biked together and uh, across the continental U.S. 3,735 miles together. They did it in 45 days. And at the end of every one of those races, somebody comes to Rick Hoyt in a wheelchair and puts a and puts a medal over his neck. And he didn't take one step. He didn't lift one finger, and he gets awarded this medal for completing all of these races for completing this race. He contributed nothing. All he had was a father that loved him enough to provide everything that he needed. And what I want to end with tonight is for you to know that you have a father that loves you enough to provide for you everything that you need. We're the people of Israel. We contribute nothing. And he sends a weak representative savior to do what we can never do on our behalf. And so ordinary spirituality, you want to know what it looks like to be an ordinary, just what a Christian is? A Christian is not somebody that's just trying to be a better person and just happens to use a little God to make us that way. A Christian, an ordinary Christian is someone who rests on the person and on the work of Jesus on their behalf because they know they could never do it themselves. So here's the question for you. What are you going to do? You want to keep white-knuckling your way through life? I can do this. I got this. I'll only throw up flares to God whenever I think I might need him. I'm not going to involve people in my struggles. I can do this. Self-reliant, self-confident. 
the house of your life cracking as you go? Or will you rest on the omnipotent, unstoppable, never-ending love of God for you in Jesus? What is your faith in? What will it be in? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that the foundation of Jesus is so much sturdier, so much more stable, so much better than ourselves. Father, we are horrible foundations to bank anything on. We are fickle. We are half-hearted. Our desires are deceitful and confusing. We're a mess. Why would we ever think that we're the solution? Father, open up our eyes to see how foolish it is to trust ourselves. And would you give us grace to roll all of the weight of our hopes and dreams and meaning and identity upon the Lord Jesus, uh, great David's greater son, who came and accomplished for us what we can never accomplish on our own. Help us to believe that, to rest in that, and for that to change our, our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.